0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on the show is Don Llewellyn. Don is a colleague of mine at Washington State University. There are fewer and fewer of us that have anything to do with animals, particularly people that have some crossover between animal science and rangeland ecology, and Don is one of those. He's a ruminant nutritionist who had a career in the Midwest and South before he came to Washington State. Don, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Where we're headed today is a discussion of how to manage a cow herd that is consuming Low quality forage. And I'm mostly thinking range and pasture grazing, not uh, bunk feeding straw or some other pre harvested uh, feed stuff like low quality hay. We've had several episodes on managing or, or trying to suppress invasive annual grass using grazing, since that's one of the only cost effective solutions out there. And I'll make a note here if a listener is aware of better cost effective solutions than grazing invasive annual grass. Uh, We'd love to talk about that on the podcast, so call me at 509-962-7507. We've also discussed in various episodes that grazing in the fall and winter gives us a larger window and tends to be more effective than spring grazing in reducing invasive annual grass, and there are three main mechanisms that are perhaps more effective at control than what we do in the spring, which is pretty much just removing some seed heads. Uh, one, if we graze stuff like cheatgrass in the fall, the animals will uh, paw through the litter to consume the fall germinated seedlings, which uh, when they're growing through the litter kind of are like bean sprouts. So they're pretty nutritious and tasty. The second thing is that uh, the animals will disrupt the litter layer by pawing through it to find those seedlings. And then third, and this is the interesting part, apparently the cattle will actually consume quite a bit of that, uh, of that litter layer. But that's the part that worries me and anybody else who's trying to keep their cows in good condition through the winter. I, I haven't looked up what the feed values are on cheatgrass litter, but it's it's low. It would be on the order of bluegrass straw, I would guess. And so I'm going to quote from your extension publication, Don, on this for a, a teaser for the episode. Uh, you said, A common misconception about forages is that low-quality forages serve only as fillers and have little value as feed. But if this were universally true, wild ruminants would not be able to survive on low-quality forages. End quote. Now, I'm fond of saying that rangeland-based animal husbandry is the only method of food and fibre production that relies on naturally occurring plant communities, and those naturally occurring plant communities are not always twelve percent crude protein. And I think the the beauty of this system, a system where a domesticated animal is taking the most abundant carbohydrate on the planet, cellulose, and converts it into something that humans can use. That system depends on rumen microbes metabolizing really low quality feed, or at least uh, being able to function through times of the year when what they have available is low quality. And ideally, you know, in the world of rangeland based livestock production, we do that without a lot of input costs, and that's where livestock production makes economic and ecological sense. That's a mouthful, but before we get around to that, uh, let's let's talk a little about how you ended up being a ruminant nutritionist. How and why did you get into animal nutrition?
1: yeah tip um, well the ruminant nutrition is kind of my second career. I, I started out farming and ranching I grew up in the in uh, uh, the state of Washington uh, in the north central part and uh, uh, fed cattle and and worked with uh, grain farming and, and so forth. And, and so this is kind of my second career. And uh, uh, it's just basically all comes back to being able to, uh, to apply those things that I learned as an undergraduate before I came home, home to farm and ranch. And uh, that really interested me. And that's what uh, uh, took me uh, into graduate school and, and more uh, advanced study. And uh, after, after graduate school at Kansas State University where I was the research assistant at the Cal calf unit for, for four years, uh, then I, I did uh, do five years on the teaching faculty at Eastern Kentucky University. And then when the job opening came w- with uh, WSU Extension, it was natural that uh, I would apply for that so, I, so that I could get back in, the, in my home country. And, and that's the best of both worlds, to do what you love to do and also to be able to do it back home.
0: Yeah, for sure. Ruminant biology and nutrition interest me a lot, uh, but I'm not at all, an expert in it, uh, and I think a lot of what I'm excited about regarding the, the way rumens work, I picked up from you. Uh, the term itself that I think I heard you use once, rumen ecosystem, says a lot about ruminant animals that probably not everybody knows, uh, even the people who listen to this podcast, which tend to be uh, ranchers, range specialists, range students, people who ought to know something about ruminant nutrition. Uh, but i remember you saying at one point i think that there are over a billion individual organisms in a single milliliter of rumen fluid that blew me away and and that there are a uh, tons of different kinds of organisms quite a bit like uh, you know, what you would have in the ocean where you've got large organisms, little bitty ones, ones that are eating each other. Uh, they're not all just eating the feed that we throw down a cow's throat like an ocean, but in the miniature. That, I think that's a mark of a good teacher. You can tell that I was interested, that stuck with me, and I was captivated by that. Uh, can you give us a, a bit of a, a primer on rumen physiology? Are those things that I think I'm recalling true?
1: Uh, Yeah, they are, Tip, and and the the interesting thing about this is that is that when you think about that rumen uh, uh, ecosystem, there's there's uh, uh, the the rumen microbes have a, a nutrient requirements for the various nutrients, pro- protein or in the form of nitrogen or energy or whatever, they have a nutrient requirement just like the, ca- the cow or the steer or, or whatever. And so basically we, we have to satisfy the nutrient requirements of the, of the rumen microbes just like, like we eventually, wi- along with the rumen microbes, satisfy the, the nutrient requirements for the cow.
0: So when we feed the cow... We're mostly feeding the rumen microbes. Is everything that the cow gets in terms of, um, you know, what what they need to live on the result of the microbe digesting stuff? Or is there stuff in the feed that goes, bypasses the rumen microbes and, and goes straight to the cow?
1: Yeah, it, in actuality, it's both. Let's take protein for an example. The metabolizable protein requirement of a ruminant be it a cow or a sheep or whatever, is satisfied in two different ways. One is microbial protein, and the other is with your flow through, or as you say, your bypass protein. Your your microbial protein is a result of those rumen microbes assimilating nitrogen from the feed and then uh, utilizing that to make proteins in in their uh, microbial cells. And of course, microbes are uh, uh, reproducing exponentially in the rumen, and so they have to go somewhere. And and eventually, they're going to die off and wash out, and they're digested for protein and energy, just just like uh, a piece of feed would be. And so that's one way that that the protein requirement is met. And the other way is that there's some some. Uh, proteins that are not digested in the rumen that pass on through and are digested in the small intestine just as, as uh, any other protein would be. Uh, just uh, in other words, they're not broken down and they're just digested as a, as a monogastric would.
0: Right. And then there's lots of stuff in, in forages that's not protein. And I think if I'm going the right direction, that we're mostly concerned in thinking through low-quality forages that uh, a lot of what's in there is cell wall instead of soluble cell contents. And the cell walls are lots of cellulose. And then there could also be other anti-quality compounds like silica maybe that make the forage uh, less digestible than we'd like or less valuable to the animal than we'd like. Uh, What are the different how are those things separated out if we're thinking about animal nutrition and how to, to measure it, at least uh, on the front end? What are the, what are the different components of forage and, and what makes a feed good or bad? Or, or uh, maybe to avoid you know, the good or bad, what, things that have high feed value or have low feed value? Sure.
1: Well, typically, if, if we look at uh, a forage – as it matures, let's say just a grass, for example, and, and your cheat grass could be, if, although it's short, short lived, it's a it's a pretty good example. And our range grasses are the same, as as they mature from full vegetative, they're tip, typically fairly high in protein, and then over time, as they mature, that protein level drops. Alternatively, the fiber level in the in those forages grasses that increases as we move towards vegetative maturity so so the quality of of the grass is decreasing because of loss of protein over uh, as it matures and then fiber is increasing as it matures and and in essence that's saying that the digestibility is going down because there's going to be, uh, in inverse relationship between the the digestibility and the amount of fiber, and so and 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 you know when when I talk to my students about about fiber, uh, you know we, we all we always hear a lot of things about fiber about for people you know it's good for our diet and, and this mm-hmm. and that, and I ask them I say well what is fiber, and and you know we'll. Well, we have this discussion. It's a, it's actually structural carbohydrate. It gives structure to the plant mm-hmm. material, and and it's it's basically long repeating chains of glucose makes up cellulose. Whereas whereas let's say starch, for example, in our grains, that's long repeating chains of glucose, but but that it it has a different bonding system. Alpha bonds in the starch easily broken down by monogastrics. You know, we eat starch mm. and uh, and utilize potatoes and grains and breads and all that kind of stuff really well. Right, and, and so do cattle. But but the the beta bonds in the fiber are what are more difficult to break down. And that's why they need those rumen microbes to produce the enzymes to break the beta bonds. And that's the difference between a ruminant and a monogastric on why, why they do really well on forages and even really low-quality forages.
0: So if somebody's looking at a, a, a forage test or a hay test, uh, how would these different kinds of components be communicated on a forage test result?
1: Uh, we like to look at things on a dry matter basis uh, uh, obviously we look at the dry the protein content in crude protein uh, uh, on a dry matter basis and and one thing that a lot of people don't don't think about is is that crude protein lumps a lot of different things together it's not all true protein it, it's basically uh, an analysis that that measures nitrogen and so Albeit uh, extra things in there besides protein may not be in a very large a quantity, but it also takes in the in your your s- nuclear components from the the nucleus of cells as w- and in your uh, your uh, your DNA and and all of those things in addition to to the amino acids. And in other words, it lumps all nitrogen containing compounds together mm-hmm. because a ruminant doesn't really care where the nitrogen's coming from. It's still gonna get broken down, or most of it's gonna get broken down in the ruin, rumen, or a good, good share of it.
0: Yeah, so the protein is fairly straightforward just based on the amount of right. nitrogen in the feed stuff. What about the fiber? Okay,
1: so, so basically, if we look at the, at the forage analysis, well, we typically uh, analyze for neutral detergent fiber and acid detergent fiber. The neutral detergent fiber uh, takes in the hemicellulose and the cellulose and all and, and the lignin and, and uh, other quality components may be in there as well. but, but those are less digestible components. Uh, and that comes from the, new, the detergent fiber system that's been around since, you know, the late 1960s or so. Now, there's a pretty good re- – there's a somewhat of a relationship between neutral detergent fiber and intake. So, in other words, the higher mm-hmm. the NDF. We, we would think that that would decrease intake. Then there's a relationship between ADF, which is the cellulose and it takes the hemicellulose out and it's the cellulose and the inequality components. And that that has a pretty good relationship with digestibility. Okay. so So as that measure of fiber goes up, we would expect digestibility to probably go down to a certain degree. So, so those are things we think about when we're starting to build our, our feeding programs is, is how does that fit into what we're trying to attempt to do when we, when we, uh, try to get those cows to consume as much as we can get them to consume of a low quality forage and also to get them to digest as much as we can of what they of what they eat
0: right so the problem is that if the forage is low enough quality and by low quality we mean that it doesn't have a lot of protein and it does have a lot of uh, fiber of various kinds then the the animal's intake goes down and they're perhaps not able to consume enough volume of it enough bulk to meet their nutrient requirements is that right
1: yeah that's that's correct and and so when we think of low quality forages one term that that i like to share is the fir- is the term of the first limiting nutrient and in low quality forages our first limiting nutrient is typically protein. And what that tells us is is that if the protein requirements are not being met for the cow and the rumen microbes, then uh, production or, or optimum production can't move forward. So in other words, with the, le- the first limited nutrient, that's the first thing we got to correct before, before we can get those cows to perform on whatever type of low quality forage we're talking about.
0: How do we get the rumen to digest enough of that stuff to make it work for the cow and meet their nutrient requirements and find optimum production?
1: I've spent quite a number of years in the field of protein supplementation, dating clear back to, to my time in Kansas. And to give you an example, uh, those grasses, those range grasses in Kansas are very low in quality when they reach full maturity. So These are mostly warm you- season? They're both warm uh, and cool. They would have a mixture of warm and cool season, but the warm season grasses are especially low in quality. You know, like right. your blue big your blue stems and and so forth. And so, so I mean, you can you can take forage testing or forage tests of those grasses out there in the in the winter time, and they might only have three uh, percent protein on a dry matter basis. So I mean, we're talking very low quality, and and so. And so with beef cows, we really need to kind of define what low quality is. And So, so typically, we consider anything that, that any forage that has about less than 7% crude protein would be considered a low quality forage. And where, basically where that comes from, it's going to take about that much protein in, in, the, uh, in the grass to come anywhere near uh, meeting the protein requirement for a dry pregnant cow, a spring calving cow in the winter time, right? You know, and so, so, and, and then of course, as we get closer to calving, and as we get uh, get through calving, those requirements are going to go up. Mm-hmm. But, but those, but that's kind of where we define a low quality
0: forage. I would guess that a lot of range grass in say october and november is going to be more like three four or five percent crude protein yeah that's that right oh yeah i would think so and and you know
1: here in here in eastern washington we have a lot of producers that use uh corn cor, uh, corn residue that they that they graze in the fall that's a little higher quality um but How about wheat straw or, I mean, wheat stubble, barley stubble and those type of those type of scenarios. Um, Same thing as what you're talking about, cheatgrass. You got a mature, a mature grass out there. It's got energy in it. But what you got to do is figure out how you're going to unlock that energy and make it available to the cow. So we use our protein supplementation as a tool to try to unlock
0: uh, the potential energy out of that. Right. I think that's a good place to switch gears. Uh, but before we do, it seems like forage testing is a good thing to talk about here in the middle. Uh, in your in your publication that will provide a link to um, – the document is on WSU's publications website, but uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You say that forage testing should be an integral part of all beef cattle operations. That sounds like a recommendation to me. Uh, so people shouldn't – we used to say don't guess, soil test – this in this context we would say don't guess forage test I'm familiar with people taking forage tests on hay that's not real uncommon Uh, but it seems like it's much less common to do forage tests on you know standing range grass Uh, do you recommend that and if so how do you go about it and then we'll go to talking about supplementation
1: anytime your cattle are on on any time of range grass uh forage testing is still a possibility and you know it all boils down to the fact that you have to get a representative sample and that's a little bit harder than it is than if you're taking cores out of a bale yeah. or out of a group of bales when you got a 100 ton of hay sitting in the barn or whatever but but uh you know there if you're going to do it uh, I mean Uh, If we were doing research, we'd go out there and set up grids and everything like that. But that's not something we have to do in a in a production scenario. But what I would suggest is you got to get some grass off the hilltops. You got to get some out of the draws and all of the different, uh, you know, topography so that you get a representative sample because uh, uh, it's. That's that's going to help you a lot in the accuracy of your estimate.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me like this might be worthwhile, even though I don't think it's very commonly done. That's that's probably our job to help promote some of that. But, you know, one of the main objections to people using supplement is that it's quite expensive uh, and expensive enough that it kind of makes sometimes grazing that low-quality range forage more of a break-even Proposition economically, where your main objective is just to hold the herd, you know, long enough until you can get back on, you know, some other kind of high quality feed. But if a forage test costs twenty bucks and you do five of them on several different pastures or different landscape positions, uh, you know, a hundred dollars is pretty cheap insurance to help you avoid overbuying supplement or, or buying the wrong kind of stuff. Am I right about that? Absolutely, and
1: and like I tell the students, I say, it, you you don't know what you need until you know what you have, and right. so that kind of goes back to your uh, your uh, saying about forage testing, and and I think that it, it's really important. It's not hard to calculate what you need, but uh, you're just shooting in the dark if, if you, you don't know what you have. If you don't know,
0: that's right. Yeah. So you would if 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 we were going to take a go take a sample say from a range pasture uh am i clipping just the portion of the plant that i think the cow is going to eat you know say from four inches of stubble up in other words i'd leave the last four inches on the ground is that the portion that i would take a sample from and collect 20 plants absolutely because uh you you want
1: to have it as accurate as you can you know the the cattle are going to graze. I mean, the more pressure they put on the pasture, the deep, the farther towards the ground that they're going to graze it. But, but you have to kind of try to mimic what they, what they uh, are doing out there. And one, one thing I'd like to, to interject here too, is, is that uh, uh, pe- people don't uh, uh, realize also that when those cattle are out there grazing, the, they're not just going with reckless abandon. They're actually selecting a diet because if you, if you take a monoculture mm-hmm. of grasses or go out, uh, I, I've, I did studies like this in Canada, a, a diet selection study, you go out there and if you sample the grass uh, in, in on the range and then, and then sample it, what the animals are actually eating after right. they've consumed it, those those cattle are going to select a diet and this doesn't matter whether it's the west part of the united states or the midwest or whatever the literature will support this they're selecting a diet that's 2 or 3 percentage points higher in protein than the average of the standing grass so that prehension that they're doing with their with their mouths and so forth they they actually have <clears throat> pardon me a method to what they're doing and, right and it's, it's really amazing
0: they're picking out individual plants and plant parts that are that are closer to meeting their requirements
1: absolutely yeah. but typically we don't figure that into our to our protein requirements because that's right. kind of our cushion You know what I mean? Right. Uh, Because if the grass out there, we sample it, it's at 7%, then we'll supplement accordingly. And if they get a little bit more because
0: of their selection, that's just all the better. So just to spell this out again, what happens when we offer a protein supplement to cattle eating low-quality feeds? What specifically is going on with ruined microbes that enables the cow to do something with all that cellulose?
1: Okay, so what are the key factors in protein supplementation that we have to be thinking of is you have to have adequate forage out there because if we don't have adequate forage it's really not supplementation right so it's just feeding it's just feeding and so <laughs> so what what we do is we can provide a limited amount of protein to meet the requirement as long as they have adequate, albeit maybe really poor quality grass. And so what we're trying to do is charge up the rumen microbes, satisfy their requirement for nitrogen, so that they so that they increase the amount of or the proportion of that grass that they break down in the rumen. And so on very low quality forages, what we like to see is that as a result of a limited amount of protein supplementation is an increase in intake mm-hmm. and an increase in digestibility and, we, and very low quality forages. We'll usually see both. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes in the war, or the cool season grasses of the Pacific Northwest, we may not see as much of an intake response. But we may still see the digestibility response. But those two things they go hand in hand. And uh and we really uh we're really just trying to to charge up the rumen microbes to do their job better and unlock the potential energy that, that's in that grass. So there's the an inexorable link between energy and protein because because a little bit of protein through better utilization of the grass delivers more energy. Does that make sense?
0: Yep. You know, a lot of people use liquid supplement, uh, stuff like Anapro. Uh, People use low moisture tubs or or blocks that provide protein. Uh, What are some of the various kinds of supplement and your thoughts on the relative value of some of those? I realize some of that's constrained by location. You know, if you're trying to provide... Alfalfa hay for a supplement—that's not quite as easy to do in a remote range location than, um, you know, than running some tubs in. What are the different kinds of supplement that work?
1: Yeah, that's right, Tip. Uh, At some producer meetings, I've I've had producers. Really want me to say, well, what's best? Should yeah. I use a lick wheel? Should I use uh, a molasses tub? Should I use a hand-fed supplement, say like canola meal? That would be a classic that would be available in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Should or 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 how should I deliver this? Should this be should this be a um, uh, a hand-fed, and do we deliver it daily or or can we deliver it? several days a week or whatever. And, and I te- what I tell them, the answer to that question is, is it really doesn't matter because if you're managing your animals to have adequate grass out there, it doesn't matter too much about what vehicle you're using mm. to supply the protein. The concept is still the same. And so maintain adequate grass and, and then deliver protein to make up the the protein uh, uh, deficiency. And then what the the only other caveat to that is is that if you're doing a self-fed supplement, uh, intake control is is the the mm-hmm. the key the factor. It, right. it is a challenge because because. You know, some of, those, some of those old boss cows, they're going to love it, and they're going to eat lots. And there'll be some, some cows that maybe are a little more timid, or they just don't like it. <clears throat> and so um, uh, your, your, uh, your intake across the herd may be a little bit more variable. And and the uh, one yeah. other thing I might say too is about our feed testing is if you're using a particular protein supplement that's like a dry like a canola meal or like in the Midwest they use a lot of a lot of cake or cubes you know or mm-hmm. or um, uh, there they use a lot of soybean meal or whatever always always uh, do a feed analysis on your protein supplement as well because. Uh, Some of Mm. these byproduct feeds, like distillers, grades, or canola meal, or or whatever, have a lot of lot-to-lot variations. And so, we can find uh, a lot of variation in the protein content of those. And so, we have to, there again, know what we have, so we know how much of it to feed.
0: Right. How much do the various supplements differ in the level of protein provided and in the amount of energy provided and under what circumstances would you use something that's quite a bit higher in protein? Like if you've got extremely low quality feed, would you, ups, would you offset that with a, 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 a supplement with significantly higher protein value? Yeah, you can do that. If
1: you're giving a similar amount of protein with a lower protein supplement, then it stands to reason that you're probably going to – let, let let's just say for example you have a protein supplement that's at twenty five percent and then you have another supplement that's at that's at forty-five uh, percent, like soybean meal or whatever. Right. And if you if you give double uh, the amount of the of the twenty-five percent, you're probably gonna deliver more energy from the supplement itself. And then we get into the conundrum of energy versus protein supplementation when we when we just feed a little bit of protein to unlock the unlock the potential energy out of the grass that is very very efficient if if we decide we're going to mix say a little gr- rolled barley with our protein supplement because those cows need a little bit of extra extra energy then then the what we call the gross supplementation efficiency is going to be poorer than it is if we're just getting the extra energy out of the grass and so but there's there's a couple of reasons why we might want to deliver energy along with our protein supplement uh in would be in the case of let's say we're a little short on grass or let's say we want to uh, to save grass and extend our grazing season or or we want to um uh, or, or we're in a drought situation, uh, then it might be, might be well, well to, to deliver some extra energy with it Hmm. and, and increase the stocking rate or, or increase the length of the grazing season or whatever. And that's what we call when we put an energy supplement along with the protein that's what we call the substitution effect in other words right. in other it's words stretching they're stretching it right in other words that energy in the supplement is taking the place and depressing the the need for the grass a little bit
0: right how consistent are some of the uh, you know non feed supplements things like low moisture tubs or blocks so they pretty much match what's on the label or do
1: you know? Uh, I, I would think so. You, you know, there there's going to be, like all feeds, they'll have a, a, a range, you know, not less than so many percent protein or whatever. And, and I think that uh, you can, you can uh, you know, go by, by what they say on the label. But, those, but just bulk supplements, I would say, and especially those byproduct feeds, you should uh, test those to be sure you know what you got. Mm-hmm. Uh, because and, and another another thing about the byproducts, let's say canola meal that's available here in the northwest, for example, it depends on how it's processed. If it's just crushed, there'll be more residual fat in there, which is which is can be beneficial because it's extra energy. If uh, on the other hand, if it's if it's a, a, a oil seed that's uh, solvent extracted, there'll be less residual oil left in there and less fat. And so you just need to know what you got.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that's interesting in the follow-up paper that you did on this, uh, on fetal programming, if I understand it right, is that a, a mother that has gotten accustomed to consuming and successfully metabolizing low-quality feeds passes some of that ability on to its offspring. Is that right? Sure. And,
1: and I think that... Some of that early research that came out back in a, around 2008 or so, the amazing part about that is that it, they showed that through years and years and years of records, of their supplementation records, and then following these cattle, these calves through through uh, heifer development or the steers through the feedlot, that – that a little bit of supplement during that third trimester uh, in the form of of that supplemental protein in the spring calving cows was having an effect on the fetus while, while it's in utero, but also affecting how that animal performed all the way downstream clear into the feedlot. And that's pretty amazing stuff.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting.
1: And t- talking about you know differences in in marbling ability or
0: or carcass weight and so forth, pretty cool stuff, right? Because you would think that the animal's performance would be nearly entirely related to their own rumen and ecosystem and and what the individual animal has been exposed to uh, after it. was no longer attached to the mother but somehow it changes their long-term ability to deal with that stuff
1: absolutely and that's and when you talk about it from the time they're in utero till the time they come out of the feedlot you're getting up there towards a couple of years that it's still there's still measurable effects based on that protein that happened to mama cow while she was on pasture during the winter well while she was pregnant
0: yeah one of the I'm going to say conflicts that's that I think is out there in the world of livestock production, particularly in the beef industry, is you know the philosophy that you need to uh, you know do whatever you can to make the cow match the environment. I tend to lean that direction. Uh, we we had a a podcast episode with Dr. Fred Provenza, uh, who has written a lot about the the benefits of uh, wild environments that have high uh, botanical diversity and some of the benefits of that to the animal. Uh, but then you also have people that say, you know, we have pretty fancy genetics in, uh, in the beef herd right now and we need to give them what they need in terms of inputs above and beyond what the environment naturally provides to allow that, you know, performance or production to be expressed. This feels to me like kind of a meat in the middle <laughs> solution, uh, you know, where, Regardless of how you cut it, a cow is not going to do all that well on three percent crude protein, and so it's reasonable, you know, what we're asking a cow to do in a scenario where they're fall or winter grazing some pretty rough, low elevation rangeland uh, is is to make do with feed that doesn't meet their requirements, and this is giving them just enough tools to allow the microbes to do their job without, you know, without fully trying to modify the environment. You know, Fred Provenza would say that it, when you try to fight nature, you end up spending more money than you can afford, and you still don't end up, usually, in a good place. Uh, is this a this looks like a, a pretty reasonable uh, meet in the middle solution? It,
1: it is, uh, like you say, meeting in the middle is probably a good thing. Uh, w- one example that I use about finding the right cattle to match your environment is let let's talk about um uh the 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 needs of a cow in the desert southwest versus the high country of uh north central washington it's it's a lot different you know right. uh, a high a high milk producing cow in the desert southwest she may uh, uh deplete her body reserves so much she will not get her bread back and mm-hmm. so so whereas uh on, on a good year, heavy, heavy grass uh, in good rains in the north, north central part of the state of Washington, you can you can uh, get a little bit more meat product or I'm sorry, milk production out of those those cows and, and still have them be able to main body condition. Because, I mean, th- there's that link between body condition and needing those cows to be in adequate body condition uh, by the time that they calve and uh, so that they'll breed back is really important. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, all, it's all about uh, uh, matching the cow to, the, to, the, uh, to their environment. And, and like you say, there's whether we talk about selecting sires or whatever, there's all kinds of high, high-powered genetics there but, and, and they look really good, but we have to remember what kind of uh, rangeland that these cattle are gonna be on.
0: Right. They have to perform under those conditions.
1: That's right. And that's, and that's your world. You know, I mean, you, you know this and, and you deal with rangeland every day and uh, you, you know, the vast differences
0: and we just have to take that into account. Yeah. And one of the challenges, especially with the Intermountain West native rangelands is that the, the native, uh, the native plant community uh, was notorious for curing out well and those plants retained quite a bit of their forage value into dormancy. Uh, once those native plants have been replaced by uh, exotic invasive species, like invasive annual grass uh, and even some perennial grasses, uh, that they were replaced with, uh, they don't have the same value in dormancy. And so now we have a bigger challenge than you know than than once was to try to make animals make do on what's out there. Uh, In the show notes, we're going to put a link to the two extension publications that you wrote, Don, on low-quality forages and then the other one uh, on on fetal programming. We'll also put on there some forage testing procedures for both range pasture and testing hay. And we'll put a link to uh, a publication on interpreting a forage test and then then also some information on, on how to go about Selecting supplement and applying supplement in a in a real world setting. Uh, Don, what's the one thing you want listeners to remember or to try out from our discussion today? If you're going to supplement
1: uh, protein on low quality forage, you have to have adequate f- uh, an adequate forage base before you start. If you if you don't, then you're probably going to be looking at your your uh, protein supplement along with supplying some energy as well because basically what you're trying to do is provide a small amount of protein to unlock the potential energy that's tied up in
0: that low-quality grass. Very good. Again, my guest today was Don Llewellyn, a rubinant nutritionist with Washington State University. Don, thank you for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure.